0: Perhaps no one in scripture better typifies the Savior Jesus Christ than Joseph of Egypt. Through his righteousness, he was instrumental in the salvation of all of his brethren. At the same time, the events of Joseph's life would prove prophetic in another way as well, as one branch of the house of Israel, separated from the rest, would receive revelations which would eventually come to accrue for the salvation of all. That's a prophecy we see fulfilled in the Book of Mormon. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you all for joining us. It's wonderful to have everyone along for the ride. This week's lesson is lesson number 12, fruitful in the land of my affliction. The scriptures covered are Genesis chapters 41 through 45, the story of Joseph in Egypt. You'll recall we began this story last week and we talked specifically about Joseph's aspects of personal righteousness, how he resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife and also how he kept himself from despair, even though all of the good things that he had done led him into suffering. That's an important lesson, and I encourage you to listen to it. But this week we're talking more about the larger aspects of Joseph's life and what they, what they mean to all of us and what they, what they symbolize in the history of the nation of Israel, of the people of Israel, in the spiritual history. And uh, as an introduction into what I mean by spiritual history of the people of Israel... Let me, let me f- foreshadow a little bit what we're going to be talking about in a couple of months when we study Isaiah. So one of my favorite uh, topics when we're talking about Isaiah is, uh, is a lecture that I call The Six Antecedents of Isaiah. Now, you may recall from English, from junior high school English, that an antecedent is what you later refer to with a pronoun. So an antecedent is the noun, and then the pronoun is what that refers to. So if I say John went into the store and he bought some pears, then John is the antecedent. Now the the six antecedents of Isaiah are, I I call them the antecedents because quite often Isaiah uses pronouns in, in a very old Testament way. And uh, a lot of different prophets do this, but, um, that he Isaiah is probably the most prominent of it. It's probably the most notable, noticeable in Isaiah. And for that reason, a lot of people find Isaiah very hard to understand. But if you understand that Isaiah uses these antecedents almost interchangeably. So when, uh, for example, when Isaiah says, and he grew up before him as a tender reed," we don't know who he's talking about when he says he. And the truth is, the, re- the reason we don't know what he's talking about is because quite often Isaiah himself isn't just talking about one particular person or antecedent. Sometimes he's talking about actual events in his own life. I'm not going to give away too much of that lesson now, but sometimes he's talking about the Savior. Sometimes he's talking about the spiritual history of the nation of Israel. In other words, uh, we have things like the creation, we have the, the story of Abraham, and then we have a story like uh, Joseph going down into Egypt and his family following him, and then the Exodus where they return, or the fact that they have to fight for the land of Canaan. They have to walk over the river Jordan. All of these things are important events in the spiritual history of the people of Israel, and they have their parallels in our own spiritual journeys. They also have their parallels in the, lives, in the life of Christ, and they have their parallels. So we all have our own spiritual journey, But we also have an eternal journey, the journey of our eternal progression, or what you might call the plan of salvation. And all of these things, Isaiah moves almost without boundary between them, and sometimes he's talking about several at once. And the interesting thing about the story of Joseph is that it has multiple implications for almost all of these antecedents. And that's why I think it's so fascinating. Isaiah is... uh, was mentioned personally by Christ in his appearance to the Nephites, and he said, great are the words of Isaiah. And he didn't give that distinction to too many other prophets. He did also mention Malachi. but uh, So Isaiah being great among the prophets is similar to Joseph being great among the prophets for how he lived his life, perhaps not for the writings that he, that he passed down, at least not the ones that have survived into the present time. But certainly for the life he lived and the stories that we, that we can tell about him, uh, he was one of the greatest of the prophets and arguably the most like Christ. Um, and we'll, I'll give you just a few examples as we, as we get further into the story. Before we go any farther, I'd like to remind everyone, if, you, if you'd like to ask questions about, and I don't care if your questions are about a lesson that's already passed, I'd be happy to go back And review something if you were unclear or if you just, uh, I I failed to cover something that you'd like more information on. And if I don't know the answer, I'll research it before I begin the the podcast. And um, anyway, those questions, please email to the show at gt at com, And I will respond to those on the air. Please leave your first name and your city. Be happy to respond to those. Also, we're interested in increasing our listenership. We have, I, I know that I have now more listeners than I've ever had in a single classroom. And that's, that's very wonderful for me because my entire goal for doing this podcast every week, and it is a sacrifice, is to bring greater scholarship about the Old Testament and all of the scriptures as we go forward into all of your lives and into my own life. That is the entire reason I'm doing this. And the more people we can reach, the happier the happier and more fulfilled I, I will be about that goal. And it it really it I don't feel like I'm doing this about me. I really feel this calling to to teach the scriptures and to increase our level of understanding in the scriptures as Latter-day Saints. So please help me share the podcast by leaving your five star review on iTunes. And also every week I I put out a Post about that week's episode on Facebook. if you're on Facebook and you have gospel doctrine, like us there, share the post and that way your friends will see it in your feed and and they can find the podcast and and worship and study along with us. Okay enough about that. Uh, let's get back to Joseph. So you'll remember we left Joseph in prison and he had just interpreted the dreams of two of the prisoners, the butler and the baker. And the butler, he said, in three days you're going to be returned to Pharaoh's service. And to the baker, he said, in three days, uh, you're going to have you're going to be returned to Pharaoh in another way, and he's going to take thy head from off thee. And they both of those things came true. The one was killed, and the other was returned to, to Pharaoh's service. But forgot about Joseph until Pharaoh had a couple of dreams in the night, and. Pharaoh went to all of his wise men, his sages, his astronomers, and he said to everyone, can you, re- can you interpret these dreams? The one dream is seven fat kine, as it's called in the, in, the, uh, in the King James Version. Fat kine or cattle come out of the Nile, and then seven lean kine come out and eat them. And then seven ears of corn, as it's called in the King James Version. But these are, they didn't have corn. In, uh, in King James, the word corn meant grain, and it's probably wheat. So when they say ears of corn, they probably mean sheaves of wheat, or kernels of wheat, or grains, or, or stalks of wheat. Seven ears of corn, thick ears of corn, abundant, were devoured by seven uh, very emaciated ears of corn and Joseph, so then the, at that point, the butler remembers Joseph and says, I I knew this guy in prison. Uh, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot this, but he interpreted my dream and then it came true. Let's go get him. Pharaoh sends for Joseph and Joseph appears before Pharaoh and gives him the interpretation of the dream. And he says, first, one thing he does that's very notable here, and uh, it's important. It's worth mentioning because uh, anyone who ever fails to do this is in grave danger, and I'll explain why. But Joseph says, no, the gift is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a peaceful account. Or I can't remember the exact words, but God will give Pharaoh a peaceful story. And later on, Moses in the in the wilderness, the, the people are saying, hey, we're thirsty, we're dying. And Moses said, what should I, should I hit my stick on the rock and bring water out for you now? And he takes... Credit for what he's the miracle that he's about to perform, and even though uh, God, or shall I make, shall I make water come out of the rock? And in the past, he's been able to do it just by commanding it, but this time he has to smite it with his staff. And God is chastising Moses for his pride, and in fact, this this episode of pride is later given as the reason why Moses. Is not allowed to enter the promised land with the children of Israel, but instead he's taken at the age of 120 years. And you'll find these humble examples throughout the scriptures where prophets and men of God and women of God, they list God as the cause of all of their gifts rather than trying to take credit for anything themselves. And... It's important to understand what our spiritual gifts are. These things bring great satisfaction to us as well as extending the blessings of God to those around us. But it's also important, as Christ did, to give credit where credit is due, and all of our glory in our lives should go to God because ultimately all of our gifts are spiritual gifts from God. So Joseph provides a wonderful example of that, but then he then he does give the interpretation of the dream, and he says, Pharaoh, these seven fat kine are seven plentiful years you're gonna have in Egypt and the same thing with these ears of corn these sheaves of grain they're gonna they're gonna be seven plentiful years and then you're gonna have seven years of famine and the famine will be so terrible that everyone will forget all of the plenty they had it'll all be gone and so Pharaoh I'm giving you the advice find a discreet wise man, and put him in charge and send him out to take up the fifth part of everything that's produced in all the land of Egypt and st- get yourself a food storage program because you're going to need it very soon. And because Pharaoh was the one, I imagine the Spirit of the Lord was at work as well, but because Pharaoh was the one who had the dream, and, and we see an example of this later with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel Uh, because the ruler was the one having the dream he was willing then to follow the interpretation that the prophet offered and Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's uh, demeanor we can assume and his wisdom in interpreting the dream that he immediately promotes him to the rank of second in all of Egypt so right away we have a very important parallel first of all uh we already we already had some parallels in the events that we discussed last week let's talk about now some of the parallels between joseph and christ first of all uh he was the most beloved son of his father and some of these parallels don't don't specifically refer to joseph but actually uh all of the patriarchs and we talked a little bit about why the younger son was often preferred above the older son or what should have been the birthright son so let's talk a little bit about that again joseph the most beloved son of his father but in fact abraham isaac jacob joseph and ephraim five patriarchs in a row and all of the and all of the patriarchs from the time of abraham and in fact abraham's the first patriarch that we hear of after noah and the first time that birthright becomes an issue so all of the patriarchs to the end of the book of Genesis, none of them are the oldest son. Every time, the, the very important cultural norm of the birthright son is abrogated. And why is that? That in itself is a type of Christ. Because who is the firstborn son of God in the history of the world, according to the book of Genesis, the book we're reading? Adam. Adam was the firstborn son of God, and Christ was the son of God that had to fix the mistakes of Adam or put the world back on the right track, you might say. To say that... um, And obviously, there are a lot of mistaken interpretations of the fall. To say that Adam derailed the plan of God would not be accurate, obviously. Nevertheless if it weren't for jesus christ the fact that adam caused justice to he- hold sway over us would end with us and would would end with us all in hell and in torment and responsible for our own sins and with nowhere to go and jesus christ is the one that brings it back and these these more righteous sons are types of christ in that way all of them joseph included and so Adam is the type of the firstborn son who sends the family astray. And the younger sons, the, the ones who end up holding the birthright in spite of their age or in spite of their birth order, they're the ones who bring the family back and put them back on track. And, and in fact, they end up providing for the rest of their family, spiritually speaking. And we'll talk a little more about how we know that and uh, how their families come back together. I mean, we had in, with the issue of Ishmael and I, and Isaac and with the issue of Esau and Jacob. We have very bitter feuds that lasted for years and decades. And yet we find later on them coming back together. And, and all of these feuds lasted for decades. And Joseph and his brethren—that was another example. Even though the brethren thought Joseph was dead, Joseph knew that his brethren were alive, and so in his mind, this—he uh, may not have known whether they were, still wanted to kill him if they ever saw him, and so this feud was continuing. So it's an interesting—it's an interesting pattern that pattern that has repeated several times, which is the feuding brothers who hate each other for decades and are separated by land and by time and they can't talk to each other. <clears throat> that separation is what Adam brought upon the human family. It's known as spiritual death and he fr- he brought it first upon himself when he was ejected from the garden. But really we all brought it upon ourselves when we chose to, came to er- come to earth. We we elected to be separated from God. We chose that the law of justice would hold sway over us. And in our ignorance, further, we sinned. Now, we didn't have to. Jesus Christ showed. Just because we're in a fallen world doesn't mean we have to sin. Every one of us, we we sin because we choose to. But it it does seem that for all of us that choice on some level is unavoidable so we separate ourselves from our family from our father from the from the good things of our posterity the blessings that god has promised to our line to our lineage and as abraham desired to be a prince of peace meaning he wanted to have followers that believed in him and did what he taught because it was right rather than because he was mighty that's the same way that all of these these younger sons the non-birthright sons that's the same way that they become the birthright sons is by yearning to be princes of peace and obviously they're all types of the true prince of peace who is Jesus he was also expected to reign because of might and instead he became a prince of peace. He wasn't a prince of war. He wasn't a prince of political power. Interestingly, Joseph, while holding political power, never exercises it as a man of war. He's not a ruler of violence. And even though he is second to Pharaoh, Pharaoh puts him in charge of something as mundane as gathering food into a storehouse. And that ends up being the salvation of all. So very quickly, and I'm sure you've all heard this, or you will hear this in your lessons on this topic, I'm going to list some of the similarities between Joseph and Christ, the events in Joseph's life and the events in Christ's life. And then we're going to talk about why it's important that we study them. Because just to understand that there are similarities... Uh, doesn't really necessarily have any meaning. So we'll discuss why why these similarities do have meaning. First of all, Joseph was hated by his brethren, and Jesus was hated by his brethren, the Jews. Joseph was sold or betrayed by those who were closest to him for the price of 30 pieces of silver, which at that time was the cost of a male slave. Because I'm sorry, Jesus was. Because Joseph was 17, he was also sold for the cost of a male slave, which was 20 pieces of silver. But had he been an adult, it would have been 30. Jesus began his ministry at 30 years of age. Joseph was released from prison at 30 years of age. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Uh, Joseph's brother Judah, which is the same name and these names have a transition from the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek New Testament. But Jesus was almost undoubtedly, as we've, as we've come to know in the last few years, was undoubtedly speaking Hebrew. Uh, and it, for many years it was believed that he was probably speaking Aramaic. And Jesus would would most likely have been fluent in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. But it's likely that in his daily life he spoke Hebrew most of the time Um, and so the name Judah would have been the exact same the name of Judas would have actually been pronounced by Jesus as Judah or and that's the anglicized version we're not even saying it right nevertheless those two names are the same name they're betrayed by someone with the same name Uh, Joseph was originally hated by his brethren Because he told them about a dream he had where there was one sheaf in a field and it stood up and the others around it bowed down to it. And his brothers took this, and rightfully so, as a dream in which Joseph was the Lord of all. And they said, oh, are we going to be obedient to you? Are we going to bow down to you? Then he had another dream where he was a star in the midst of stars. And this time the sun and the moon were there. And eleven stars made obeisance to him, and even Jacob, his father, said, "Okay, so are we all gonna, are we all gonna worship you, Joseph? Are we all gonna obey you?" But interestingly, in that second account, jo- Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob said this to Joseph, and uh, in that second account, Jacob later said, uh, or le- Jacob later observed the saying, meaning he accepted it. Uh, and in Jesus's life the Jews were most upset by the fact that Jesus was considered the king of the Jews so these are these are all parallels that Joseph has in common now why do we care what does it matter that Joseph resembles Christ this is uh, and I mentioned we'd get earlier that we'd get back to talking about the reconciliations between these brothers the reason that anything matters, the any parallel of Christ matters, is because of not of what we can learn about Joseph. I mean, we think we know everything that there is to know about Christ because we have the New Testament. But we can learn about how Christ will care about us when we learn about what images have been used to represent Christ. And, and I'll tell you and this I'll tell you why in this example. Later on, we learn how Joseph was reconciled to his brothers, and we can see from that how Christ really feels about us and cares about us. And we can have a more relatable example. So often we think about Christ and the question comes up what would Jesus do? We face a a choice in our lives. What would Jesus do? Sometimes that's an easy question to answer. There's a choice between whether we should be kind to someone or be selfish. Well, Jesus would be kind. But sometimes we ask that question, we think, I don't know, Jesus knows everything. So in this particular case, my problem was I didn't have enough information, and so I acted wrongly. And that's just one example. There are so many times when we we can't figure out exactly what Jesus would have done and in those cases it's often helpful and and very beneficial and can even be life altering to have a more relatable example somebody who's human like abraham a father you know has experiences that we can all relate to anybody who's had a son a beloved son and and maybe there are people out there who have a son that they worked almost as hard to get as abraham worked to get isaac and so Imagine how that person would feel reading the story of Abraham and Isaac. He'd really be able to relate to how God the Father would have felt in watching his beloved son go down to earth. And the same thing is true here. When we when we read the story of Joseph and we see the reconciliation, the story of how his brothers came back to him and eventually did bow down before him, then we can understand what it how our Savior feels about us and how silly our mistakes actually are and the reasons behind some of the mistakes we make. So first of all, the famine comes. The seven years elapse. Joseph makes good on his job, which is to store the food. And there's plenty of food in the storehouse. Then the famine hits, and it's such a terrible famine, and it hits all of the nations round about that everyone comes to Egypt to buy grain. No one else knew about the famine. They haven't been putting up stores of grain. But it says, the scripture says, in Egypt there was bread. And Jacob, in fact, hears about the fact that there's bread in Egypt from hundreds of miles away and sends his sons. Now, to understand how important this event was, first of all, of not everyone, but many of Jacob's sons by this time are grandparents. So not only does uh, Jacob have great grandchildren, but but he's sending he sends 10 of his 12 sons on this long several days, even weeks' journey down to Egypt to get the grain. And uh, the, in this culture, one's sons could be considered his entire wealth. So Jacob sends sends 10 of his sons on this errand to get grain. It shows how important it is. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but it's been 22 years roughly since they've seen him. And he was 17 when they put him into this pit. And so they don't recognize him, but... Maybe it was the Spirit of God, or maybe it's just the fact that he knows they're al- alive and they don't know that about him that allows him to recognize them. And you could maybe consider his actions next to be cruel, but there are there is more than one interpretation of what happens. He decides not to reveal himself to his brethren. And he asked them some questions. Okay, who are you? Where are you from? I think you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land is. Um, We know from knowing the end of the story that they're not still out to get Joseph. They're just here for bread. But if you think about this from Joseph's point of view, he doesn't actually know that his brothers are still uh, inclined peacefully toward him. Now, I don't imagine he's afraid for his life anymore. They don't have a reason to kill him. Or do they? I mean, maybe they still would want to kill him because now they they were threatened by him before when he was just a younger brother. And what he had to threaten them, the, the thing that, that really set them off was this coat that he wore. His father made him a gift of the coat of many colors. And it's actually uh there are jewish traditions and and you may have you may remember in previous episodes and especially with when i've had Bri cox on as a guest we've talked about the midrash there are traditions in jewish oral history where this coat of many colors was actually the same coat that uh that jacob received from esau when rebecca dresses her son jacob up in, in Esau's Good Clothing, it, one translation of that verse would read coveted clothing. And the history of that birthright, So so birthright is not just the blessing and the double portion of goods. It can also mean that you receive certain heirlooms. And there are even people who believe that this was the original coat of skins made by Jehovah and given to Adam and passed down through the generations and worn by the mighty hunter Nimrod and and it came down through Abraham and Isaac to Esau and stolen by Jacob or appropriated or sold by this might have been what Esau sold to Jacob for his pottage. And that's why even though Uh, Esau had sold his birthright, he still was expecting a blessing because the two things were separate. In any case, uh, I I like little digressions like this, but we'll end that one there. Uh, In any case, Joseph had this this coat that represented his father's great love for him and his favor, and that was enough to set his brothers off. And so now that he really does have more power than them, he might have been thinking it would it wasn't necessarily cruel for Joseph to play this trick on his brothers because he might've been thinking, what if they, what if they want to kill me even more now? Because now I really am in a position of power over them. So from one perspective, he's doing sort of a a gotcha hidden, you know, candid camera moment on his brothers. But uh, from another perspective, he really did want to know where their hearts were at. So he starts asking them questions about their family about their father, and he notices Benjamin isn't with him. And Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother. So he says, where's your, do you have any other brothers? They, they mention Benjamin and Joseph makes a demand. If you don't bring your other brother up here, I'm going to keep one of you. And he keeps Simeon. He he first threatens to keep them all but one, but then he changes his mind and keeps just one. And he says, if you don't bring your other brother up here, then I'm going to know that you're spies. So they, but he does sell him some grain. They go home and they leave poor Simeon there. And eventually the grain runs out and they tell their dad, Jacob, they say, we've got to, he sends them back down for grain. And they say, we cannot go without Benjamin. He told us if we were to show up without Benjamin, if, if we were to look on his face again, without our younger brother, then he would kill us. Jacob does not want to part with his only remaining son from his favorite wife who had died many years before. And so it takes a lot of convincing, but eventually he does allow Benjamin to go. And again, when they arrive, Joseph pretends not to know them and he gives them gifts, but he, and this time he meets with them privately. He has a meal with them, invites them over to his home and he sells them more grain at a very good deal. And then he sends them off, but he but he puts a, a precious cup from his home into Benjamin's sack, and then he sends his servant after him. And the servant says, uh, how could you treat my master so poorly? The servant's part of the trick that, that uh, Joseph is playing on him. How could you treat my master so poorly? And... You know, you've stolen the cup and they say, oh, whoever has that, let him be killed. And then it turns up in Benjamin's bag, which is exactly where Joseph put it. And so they're all really scared. They come back. And at this point, Judah says, and Judah was the one who told Jacob when they originally brought Benjamin down to Egypt. Judah said, look, dad, I will guarantee his safety. If anything should happen to him, you can blame me forever. No matter what happens, I will make sure Benjamin comes back to you safe and sound. So Joseph says, and, and Joseph, I imagine Joseph feels sympathy for Benjamin because as soon as Joseph was gone, Benjamin became the son of the favored wife. And Joseph might be worried for Benjamin's sake. He might have thought to himself, uh, if they treated me this poorly, then perhaps they're They've been treating Benjamin poorly all along. So from this perspective, I, I can really see where he's coming from because he wanted to know, are they gonna are they gonna let Benjamin die? And if they do, then they don't deserve my forgiveness. So he's testing them. This is the what I this is my interpretation of what's happening. And Judah, the very person who originally said, Let's sell Joseph into slavery, Judah comes to Joseph and says Rather than keep, and and Joseph threatens to imprison Benjamin. And Judah comes to him and says, rather than keep Benjamin, why don't you keep me? My, My father lost one son already. This is his favorite wife, the son of his favorite wife. And there's only one left. And if something should happen to Benjamin, his father's gray hairs will bow down with sorrow into his grave. In other words, it would kill my dad. And therefore, please put me in prison instead. Now, you'll, anytime you want to know that you want to be sure that the Old Testament is trying to teach you something about Christ, pay attention to when somebody asks someone else, do this, this thing that you were going to do to this person, do it to me instead. That is a very Christian, a Christ-like thing to do, is to say, let the penalty be upon my head. And Judah has really changed and Joseph can see it. He sees in his brother that rather than sell someone into slavery, sell Benjamin into slavery, let Benjamin take the penalty for all. And they all could have got off scot free. They all could have walked out of there if they just leave their little left their little brother behind, but they weren't willing to do it. Judah said, let this penalty come upon my head. And that was when Joseph knew that his brothers had really changed and that if he should reveal himself he wouldn't be gaining 10 enemies he wouldn't be reinviting 10 enemies back into his life but he really had 10 brothers again and at this point he can't contain himself anymore and he reveals who he is he reveals his deception to his brothers and then he gives them a ton of gifts and he says you have to bring my father down here and i'm i'm the second in command in all of Egypt now will you'll be taken care of and so that's what happens he he sends wagons and he sends supplies and he sends grain and he sends livestock and they go and and Jacob is convinced by all these things and he almost collapses with shock when he hears that his son Joseph is really alive and I could imagine I don't know exactly when he found out. It doesn't say in the scriptural account when he found out what happened to Joseph. I can imagine how angry he was. But it seems that he did eventually forgive his other ten sons. And he travels down to Egypt with them. And the famine is still in full swing. So you can imagine how happy Pharaoh is with Joseph at this point had those seven years gone by and then no famine come. I imagine Pharaoh would have been pretty upset that Joseph had been a swindler, but after the famine arrived and people from hundreds of miles around are all coming to Egypt to buy bread that only they have, I imagine Pharaoh was giving Joseph anything he wanted. And in fact, uh, the Jews at this point become a victim of their own success because Pharaoh says to Joseph or the, uh, the the victim of Joseph's success, because Pharaoh says, give your family the best land there is to have Pharaoh's own land, the land of Goshen and uh, Jacob brings his 70 descendants all into the land of Egypt and they settle in the land of Goshen and they become very wealthy. And there's not a lot of grain or feed or water for livestock at this point. In fact, in the last two years of the famine, everyone has spent all their money. The money has failed and money no longer is of any value to buy food. Food is far more valuable. So Anyone who has animals left, they come to Joseph and they say, Okay, rather than money, we're going to buy food for ourselves with all of our livestock. And Joseph is willing, he still has food to sell, and he sells it for livestock. And then in the final year of the, of the famine, they have no food, they have no livestock, they sell their land. And all of the land, all of the animals, and all of the food are in the hands of Pharaoh, all of the seed grain. And at this point, Pharaoh's power is absolute over the land of Egypt, and only the priest class escapes, giving all of its possessions into Pharaoh's hands. So not only is Pharaoh the richest person in Egypt, but he's also the only wealthy person in the whole of Egypt. And, And Joseph has made this happen for Pharaoh. Now here's another interesting parallel. When Jesus said, Here am I, send me, what he promised to God the Father was, the glory be thine forever, and that promise is fulfilled by Joseph towards Pharaoh. He has brought all the glory and put it into Pharaoh's hand. If you think about what it means to be the source of sustenance, uh, Jesus taught many times that. Well, he taught number one, man doth not live by bread alone, but he also taught, "I am the bread of life," and these two, the this imagery of bread. And they use the word bread. There is bread in Egypt in this in this passage in Genesis 41 through 45. The image of bread is something that you need continuously. And it's used a lot in the scriptures for our dependence on God. We have need of spiritual bread. In other words, we have to keep going back to the source of all sustenance. We can't just get one meal, one time, and then stop Conversing, Stop relating. Stop praying. Stop spending time with our Father in heaven. We have to continually go back and renew this the same way that we have to continually go eat bread. And so anybody who thought they were free from Egypt, well, you're free as long as your bread lasts. But you can't buy enough bread to last you for seven years. You have to keep going back and buying more. And that's what Joseph, because he has, he is the source of bread... He delivers all glory in the land of Egypt into his master Pharaoh's hand. That That's a fascinating parallel, I thought, that at the end, and this, it's actually not part of the lesson. This is later on, um, the book of Genesis has 50 chapters, but this lesson only goes to chapter 45. But I think it's worth continuing because later on you learn, number one, Jacob and all of his family arrive, and that's when they really bow down to Joseph. What happens is Jacob lives out his life, and he makes Joseph promise. He says, Joseph, promise me that you will bury me in the cave of my my fathers, my forefathers, the cave that Abraham bought. Promise me you'll bury me there. And when Jacob dies, Joseph and all of his brothers and even some of the dignitaries of Egypt, they go on this journey back to the land of Canaan and bury Jacob. And at that point, Joseph's brothers are really scared. They think, okay, now that now that our father's dead, Joseph's finally going to have his revenge on this us. And they come to him again, and they beg him, please have mercy on us. We we've repented, and he and he repeats his forgiveness. He says, no, I don't I don't hold that against you. I had. A problem with it then obviously, but it was God that sent me into Egypt and it was God that prepared a way for us. you you selling me was God's will and now it's proven a means for us all to be saved. And he, he proves just like they proved that they were sincere in their repentance, he proves that he was sincere in his forgiveness. Well, let's talk now about the reconciliation and we see this reconciliation over the course after the course of decades in many of the examples of the lives of the patriarchs Isaac and Ishmael if you remember from our lesson on Isaac and Ishmael the the midrash tradition is that Ishmael was threatening Isaac and even tried to kill him with a bow and arrow and Ishmael was then thrust out cast out into the desert. We don't have quite as dramatic a story of reconciliation with Isaac and Ishmael as we do of those later on, but we do know that at at the burial of their father Abraham, they were both present and they came together and they were no longer on bad terms. It's an interesting thing. Jacob and Esau. Esau hated Jacob because he felt like he'd been swindled out of his birthright, even though he had been a willing participant in the loss of that birthright. And he also didn't really value it that much until it was, didn't value it until it was gone. Well, it took 20 years, but after... Jacob had been up to the land of Haran and earned his two wives and all of his cattle and eventually freed himself from the clutches of Laban. He returned to the land of Canaan and heard that Esau was in front of him. And there his brother received him and he was, he was really worried that his brother was going to kill him. So he arranged his forces in a defensive posture, but then his brother fell upon his neck and wept. He was happy to see him and in the case of Joseph and his brethren, he, he hears them talking, He and they don't know it's him, and they don't know he can understand them because they're speaking through an interpreter. But they're saying, well, surely we have guilt because of the death of our brother. And so that's why this is coming upon us. It's been more than 20 years, and Joseph's brothers are still feeling this guilt. And so the guilt that they feel... And the legitimate guilt that they feel prevents them from bringing about this reconciliation. And even though he tells them, you're forgiven, and God has done this, and God God is the one who sent me here to Egypt, they don't believe it, even after their father dies. And it's only when Joseph literally has no reason to continue lying to them that they finally believe it. And he says look, I, I really do forgive you that it was God that sent me down there. So that's why this is such a powerful image is because we realize that these the separation of these brothers is exactly like the separation between us and Christ and especially this between Joseph and his brothers because Joseph is the righteous one and he's sitting in a position of being a judge and he is also sitting in a position to apportion the bread that will be the staff of life. Uh, what an amazing image that is and to think about how Joseph must feel. If you're reading the story and you're thinking, yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, Joseph is now, he's been exalted on high of course, he's not bitter, but when we choose to separate ourselves from Christ, we think God has got to hate me. I can't bear to pray right now because my he- there's no way my Heavenly Father wants to hear from somebody like me. And in fact, Joseph is thinking, if, if only my brothers would trust themselves and, and realize that I love them and come back to me, then I would receive them with open arms. And I have, I have all of the wealth of this huge nation behind me. And it's all theirs. And uh, earlier I mentioned that the the Jews became a victim of Joseph's success. The, the jealousy was such from the surrounding Egyptians that these Jews got the prime lands and they even got grain for their animals. And they had a jump start on everyone else's wealth in the time of the famine. That's why they became an oppressed minority later was because of jealousy and this is a story that's repeated itself many times in the jews history is that they are resented for their success and this is a this is a prophecy that that god gives them many times in the bible which is you'll be you'll be a hiss and a byword and it begins it begins here in the land of egypt and it begin and it reaches its first fulfillment in the Exodus that we'll talk about soon. Well, another, Joseph has another huge symbolism in his life, which is he symbolizes the efforts of God to save the entire nation of Israel. So what we've been talking about until now, if you put it back in the terms that I gave you with Isaiah, has been, what he symbolizes in our relationship between us, each person, and Christ, or between Adam and Christ, these, these birthright sons versus the second-born or later-born sons who are more righteous. But now we're going to talk about something in the spiritual history of Israel, which is that Israel keeps sinning and falling away from God, but then one branch of that is broken off. And the one people is separated, the people of Lehi. Lehi separates himself from Israel and unbeknownst to the rest of Israel, of his entire people, is taken to a different land. And there he flourishes and has an entire relationship with God and receives many revelations, receives a wealth of information about the plan of salvation. And years later, the the lost brothers, the ones that were left behind, they hear about this and they go unto him for salvation and bow down to him. Well, that is what happened or will happen with the Book of Mormon. So, first of all, Joseph, Joseph's separation from his brethren is, is much like Lehi's separation from Jerusalem. And in fact, Lehi discovers in the breastplates that he is of the tribe of Manasseh. He is one of Joseph's descendants. And then they're taken to a land of promise, a land that is valued above all other lands where Joseph is sent down to Egypt, the one place that there's going to be grain once this famine hits, and a famine is a as in as we read in the book of Amos, a famine is a powerful image of people lacking the word of God and so in the story of joseph the The tribes of Israel, the remaining brothers, they have a famine, meaning they they have an apostasy. And that is what literally happens in the nation of Israel in the time of Lehi. They're conquered by the Babylonians because of their apostasy. And for centuries, they don't hear about the people of Lehi. But what can be prophesied about their reconciliation is this. And this is in Joseph Smith's translation of uh, Genesis forty-eight. This is Joseph Smith's version of what Jacob says when he's blessing his grandchildren, his grandsons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. He is blessing them and saying, "Your father's house shall bow down unto you." And remember, this is the dream that Joseph had. Your all your sheaves bowed to my sheaves. Your stars bowed to my stars. And the, I'll read the, two ver- the last two verses of this particular uh, part of the Joseph Smith translation, but I recommend you read this. Jacob says to his grandsons, For thou hast prevailed, thy father's house hath bowed down unto thee, even as it was shown unto thee, before thou wast sold into Egypt by the hands of thy brethren. Wherefore, thy brethren shall bow down unto thee from generation to generation unto the fruit of thy loins forever." For thou shalt be a light unto my people to deliver them in the days of their captivity from bondage and to bring salvation unto them when they are all together bowed down under sin. And I apologize, this isn't Ephraim and Manasseh. This is uh, first first Jacob talks to Joseph about his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, but he actually blesses Joseph. Uh, The point is he first says, They're going to bow down unto you like you foresaw, but they're going to bow down unto you forever. Their sons will bow down unto your sons in all their generations. When they're bowed down under sin, and he prophesies this, this apostasy that will happen... And so this is a prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, or it is in the process of being fulfilled, which is the Book of Mormon coming forth. And Joseph Smith called that the sign that these things are about to accomplish, that the end of the world is coming, is that the Book of Mormon has come forth at the end, not the end of the world, but the end of the, the time of the Gentiles. The, you, can, you can know that God is beginning to accomplish his great and marvelous work. One more thing to remember is that uh Jacob's brothers bowed down to him when they bought the bread, but the final the final fulfillment of that prophecy was after uh I'm sorry Joseph's brothers bowed down to him, but the final fulfillment of the prophecy was when Jacob died and then Joseph's brothers bowed down to him willingly. You know, in the first instance they were compelled to do so out of hunger, but in the final instance they did so because they recognized that their brother had been their salvation and the the very message that they were so bitter to hear that they were going to have to bow down to their brother was was something they were happy to do because they loved their brother he had he had saved their lives and he had provided them a, a new land where they could go to where they were absolutely the most wealthy and privileged people around well that is the that is the very message of Christ, is that the followers of Christ will be led to a, a land of milk and honey, a, a place of utter abundance, and it's not material abundance, it's spiritual abundance. And you can know that there are two fulfillments of this, because when, jo- when Joseph had the original dreams, one was earthly, one was these sheaves, something agricultural, and the other was an image that we remember, if, if you recall from our second lesson, from the book of Abraham, now Abraham used the or Abraham received the image of stars and first God talked about the intelligences and there's intelligences that have different varying degrees of, of intelligence. And then he says there are stars that vary in glory. And the implication is clear that people and stars are co eternal, and that if you can look at the glory of a star, then you're beginning to comprehend the glory of a spirit and that is why one of these is temporal and one of is spiritual one of Joseph's dreams has a temporal fulfillment you're going to you're going to free your brothers from bondage by going down to Egypt and and foreseeing this famine but you're also going to free the the entire house of Israel from the bondage of sin as we read in the in the book of or in in the JST of Genesis 48 when they're when they're under this yoke of bondage of sin you're going to free them from that as well so that's the spiritual fulfillment and that those two fulfillments are prophesied by those two different types of dreams one is sheaves, one is stars and finally uh, we can. I, I recommend uh, a final passage for you to read I recommend Ether chapter 13 verses 6 and 7 and this is where it talks about the fact that Joseph's life is a type of of the separation between Lehi and the house of the rest of the house of Israel between the house of Ephraim. And it's not just the separation that's, that's prophesied, but it's the coming together both of the people and of the books of scripture. So, and, and this is another reason why Isaiah speaks the way he does. He talks about on the one hand, all of our, personal journeys through life and how we have to be reconciled with Christ and reconciled with God through Christ. And on the other hand, he talks about the history of Israel because Israel has a branch of it that is separated from it. And then when it's reconciled, it brings back all this truth with it. And then they bow down as in the way that Joseph's brothers bowed down. You can see that all of these things, the reason they have parallels is because we need tons of examples to teach us how much God loves us. It's so easy to forget, and it's so easy to disbelieve that our Heavenly Father could truly love such sinful beings as we, the brothers that would sell their own brother into slavery. Uh, In other words, people who would choose a sinful life when they have the Savior who would do anything for them. That's us. But when we read in the Scriptures how this brother felt, and we think, of course he wants his sinful brothers to come back, and he wants to forgive them. He misses them. And if they don't want to kill him anymore, then he's happy to have them back in his life, and he misses his dad. He wants he wants the family to be together again. We realize that, and we think, how, must, how much more perfect must the love of our Savior be? If he was a perfect person, and Joseph, as good as he was, a sinful man to some degree, how much more perfect must Christ's love be? That's why we have so many types of Christ. And it says in Moses chapter 6 that all things, all things testify of God. And there are so many types of Christ in the scriptures. And in fact, every prophet is said to be a type or an example of Christ in some way. There's a reason that there's so many testimonies of Christ. And it's because we really can't believe if we don't see it everywhere. We can't believe that he loves us as much as he does. But I testify to you that the love of God is infinite, that you have not done anything that would put you beyond that love, but he's reaching out to you. And in fact, he foresaw that you would separate yourself from him, and that's why he prepared. Now, we have these terrible sufferings. And uh, Joseph Smith, I'm going to read one more verse to you. Joseph Smith read a... or received a revelation when he was in liberty jail and it's it's just a harrowing scripture dnc section 122 and um i'll start in verse 6 if thou art accused it starts with other things that could happen but if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations if thine enemies fall upon thee if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters with a drawn sword Thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife, and of thine offspring, and thine elder son, although but six years of age, shall cling to thy garments, and and shall say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? Oh, my father, what are the men going to do with you? And then he shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged to prison, and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the Lamb. And if thou shouldst be cast into the pit, or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness, and all the elements combine to hedge up thy way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou my son." that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Well, what God's trying to communicate is we can't live in a world with real consequences, with real choice unless it has real consequences. And that means evil can exist. That means that we might be called upon to endure some things that it's it's not just going to be oh I'm having a bad day. It might be actually things where we think that the most the thing that's most dear to me has been torn away. It might be a family member, a beloved one, health. It could be it could be anything that you you take for granted one day and then the next you think how could I have not realized that was the dearest thing I could ever have. Obviously that's what's happened to Joseph Smith. And God is saying. If Even if the worst of all possible things happens to you, look at what happened to Joseph of Egypt. He was sold into slavery. His brothers tried to kill him. They put him in a pit and sold him into slavery, and he ended up in prison. All these things will work for thy good if you just hold on. And that might mean that you die. And God has a perspective on death that is quite different from our own. And I'll read the final verse in this section. Verse 9, section 122. Therefore, hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee. For their bounds are set, they cannot pass. Thy days are known, thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do. For God shall be with you forever and ever. Let's remember the love of God. It's a decision we make. And he's going to, he can't afford, the truth is he can't afford to make that decision easy. It means that we don't really know whether we love him or not. Now Judah had this chance to undo what he did when he sold Joseph into slavery, when Joseph threatened to hold Benjamin. And then Judah said, no, instead of holding my brother, you're going to hold me. And by this time, Judah was already a grandfather, and he was a man of great wealth, and he was very respected as a son of Jacob. So he had a lot going for him back at home. He was willing to give it all up, to make up for one mistake. He had truly changed. So let's, let's allow the process of the gospel and the influence of the Holy Ghost, let's allow it to change us. And let's become someone that God can give these blessings to. And that when we go through hard things like Joseph did, that we believe that God will turn it to our good. The whole purpose of life is to gain patience and wait upon the Lord and to understand that he truly is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our God. He will bless us for every good choice we make. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints.